It's the 11th of March, 2022. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Room Now, of course, is sponsoring Room Now Live, which is one week away. Next Saturday and Sunday, the 19th and 20th. You know, Room Now is a publication that comes to you. Um, it, the design of it is really about rheumatology. It's content by rheumatologists for rheumatologists. I really work hard at publishing stuff that I want to know about. And in doing so, I assume it's the kind of stuff that you want to know about. Um, what we have over the last nine years is a lot of trust and a lot of permission from all of you to show up every day in your inbox or once a week in your inbox or to listen to this podcast on a regular basis. We really appreciate that. And we have to honor that trust by working hard at producing content that you need, that you would want. Take my word for it. Room Now Live is different. We design it to be special. Um, and I don't think you're going to know that unless you take a look at it. Look at the agenda. Look at the sessions. Look at the key opinion leaders we have who are um, on the programs. We think that this is who you want to learn from, who you want to engage with. We think that these are the topics of the future in rheumatology. Um, check out that agenda at roomnow.live. It's not too late to register. We're going to begin this week with a discussion of that most difficult condition, which is starting out with joint symptoms, and I don't know what it is. It's called undifferentiated arthritis. It's early arthritis, whatever it is. This is another study. It's unique in that it comes from a different cohort. It's a large cohort. It's from the UK. It's uh, over almost 7,000 patients who presented with musculoskeletal symptoms and no evidence of synovitis. Um, in this situation, if they actually had uh, a CCP, they were referred to the early arthritis clinic, and those that weren't were followed up on. So what they found was amongst this 6,800 patients, 3% were CCP positive. And in those that were CCP positive, half of them, or 45%, progressed to chronic inflammatory arthritis, most of whom meeting met criteria for rheumatoid arthritis. So you were going to get RA and progress to RA if you had a CCP, ninefold increased risk. If you had hand or foot involvement, 2.7 to 4.1 odds ratio. These are very significant numbers. You could also get to inflammatory arthritis, chronic inflammatory arthritis or RA, if you were CCP negative, but you had to have hand and foot pain. And in those situations, the odds ratios are 2.5 and um, um, roughly around 2.5. Um, the interesting thing about this particular cohort was if you didn't have CCP and you didn't have hand or foot pain, the negative predictive value on that was 96%. So it was highly unlikely that if they were presenting with elbow problems, for instance, and they were CCP, CCP negative, very unlikely that they would actually progress to rheumatoid arthritis. I think there's a good lesson in that. We see patients like this all the time. Um, another group, uh, actually Dr. Paul Emery's group, uh, looked at their psoriatic arthritis patients. In particular, were interested in studying dactylitis. They actually had a, fair high, a fairly high number of patients, like 40 out of the 177 patients, who had evidence of dactylitis. And when they subsetted that group, compared it to PSA patients who did not have dactylitis, what do you think would be the difference? Well, you're right if you said it's more severe disease. They had significantly higher swollen joint counts, higher CRP levels, 
hot, more evidence of ultrasound synovitis and more evidence of bony erosions uh, in this cohort of what was largely DMARD-naive PSA patients. Their point was that dactylitis could be a discriminatory variable in stratifying high-risk and low-risk early PSA, and that might need study and maybe a trial in the future. It's an interesting thought. IL-23, a lot of talk about that lately. I put it on the list as one of the top things that happened in 2021 with a lot of new drugs out there. And, you know, they're working great at skin disease and psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. But you know what? They don't work in, in ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondyloarthritis. So there's a report by Jurgen Braun, I think it's in BMJ, <clears throat> or actually ARD, that shows that we have... Um, Three IL-23 inhibitors, um, Ustekinumab, a 12-23 inhibitor, Guselcomab and Rizinkizumab, all 23 inhibitors approved for psoriasis, and the latter two approved for psoriatic arthritis. Um, and they go on to show is that it's the there are studies with Ustekinumab and also Rizinkizumab that failed to show efficacy in axial spondyloarthritis. So is there hope for B, uh, IL-23 um, in SPA patients, in AS patients? I don't think so. This is being debated somewhat in the axial psoriatic arthritis subset. And does it work there? We might need more studies of this, but right now I would be looking towards an IL-23 agent if I had axial disease. Now, SPA with peripheral arthritis is going to be a different story. But we're talking about axial, those that meet criteria also for ankylosing spondylitis. I found interesting a study of anakinra and its use in 47 patients with auto-inflammatory disease. A hodgepodge of case, a case collection, if you will, but was unique about this report was they used a lot of off-label anakinra and higher-dose anakinra. So in their 47 patients, that included 32 kids, 15 adults, 43% of the cohort had macrophage activation syndrome. Um, almost half the patients were systemic JIAs. Um, off-label use, meaning there was no indication for anakinra, which is only approved for CAPS and for um, uh, adult RA. Um, off-label use in 38%. And they found that um, almost half of them used higher doses. Um, and it was mostly in, in the kids. Uh, there were five patients actually who were given IV anakinra. What do you mean by higher doses? The usual dose of anakinra is for um, CAPS, uh, cryopyra-associated periodic syndromes, is one to two kilograms per, one to two milligrams per kilogram. It can go as high as eight milligrams per kilogram. That can be pretty high. Um, you know, the usual dose in RA in adults is 100 milligrams once a day. I treated a lot of adult stills patients, and I think that, as in my experience, 20 to 30% of them will need 200 milligrams a day. And anakinra is a short-acting drug. It's got a half-life of six hours. So uh, unless you get it just right, um, as far as the surge in IL-1 in that individual, if it is sort of cyclic, uh, and surges, you might need to have more coverage during the day. So again, going up to eight milligrams per kilogram in a, you know, a forty kilogram, you know, adolescent could still be as high. What's that? Be three hundred and twenty milligrams, um, and that would be split during, you know, throughout the day. 
100 TID, for instance. So you can use higher, do higher doses. You might need to use higher doses in uh, MAS cases um, and also in um, uh, problematic systemic JIAs and adult stills. Um, remember the doses of IL-6 that were used in systemic JIA is up to 12 milligrams per kilogram in pediatric cases, that is. So higher doses are often needed, and but often not talked about. Consider it. Another interesting report from the pediatric rheumatology literature looked at um, clinically amyopathic juvenile dermatomyositis. You know, if, we, if it was an adult, we call it CADM, clinically amyopathic dermatomyositis. But juvenile cases, JDMs, that, are, that have basically no evidence of, of muscle involvement, but they have uh, impressive evidence of skin involvement. So this particular case report comes from JAMA, um, uh, a six-year-old with four-year history of rash on the hands, feet, elbows, and knees in a cl classic sort of Gottron's pattern. This was in a uh, dark-skinned individual, but you can see um, clearly the difference between normal skin and involved skin. Did not respond to topicals. There was uh, rare pulmonary symptoms, no weakness. Um, the biopsy was positive for dermatomyositis. The ANA was positive at 1 to 320. The patient had normal enzymes, no evidence of myositis-specific autoantibodies, um, and they went on to describe the treatment of this. Um, you know, then it's going to be pretty much the same treatment. There's a lot of reports recently of using JAK inhibitors in really refractory cases like this. So uh, it, this happens in kids. It happens in adults, but it probably also happens in kids. There's JAMA also had a good review this week on the diagnosis and treatment of pulmonary sarcoidosis. A few tidbits. They um, showed that only 10% of sarcoidosis cases does the lung progress. We worry about lung involvement in sarcoidosis, but it is that 10% that's a really bad news 10%. That, that particular group, when it does happen, has a five-year mortality of up to 20%, up to 18%. They go on to review what the starting doses of steroids are, and steroids are a mainstay here. Isn't that sad? Um, it's started either 20 or 40 milligrams a day, and then you treat them for up to two to six weeks, and then try to steroid spare and get it down. The steroid sparing drugs are your drugs. The you know, methotrexate, azathioprine, and TNF inhibitors have been advocated for sarcoidosis. The question is, why are rheumatologists not managing sarcoidosis? In my institution, in my city, I don't see a lot of pulmonologists who want to manage um, sarcoidosis. I don't see that they're helpful in collaborating on the management of these patients. Yet there are a lot of rheumatology fellows and young rheumatologists who want to get into RA and the usual, but they really like the ILD. You know, you can do a lot more in treating sarcoid than you can in ILD, to be honest with you. So... Um, looking for a career path? Make yourself into a rheumatologist who specializes in sarcoid. There's a, a neat study that's called the Complete PSA Study. That's a, a study of methotrexate and leflunamide in 78 active untreated PSA patients. So patients either receive monotherapy methotrexate or methotrexate plus leflunamide, usual doses of both. 
and methotrexate was superior, the combination uh, was superior to monotherapy alone. I don't know if you find that surprising. I think the big issue here is it's psoriatic arthritis. Um, there are still people out there that think methotrexate doesn't work very well in psoriatic arthritis. There's a lot of you out there that don't even consider leflunamide. I've been using leflunamide for probably 20 years uh, in psoriatic arthritis with good results. But the combination is often much better than either leflunamide alone or methotrexate alone. That's just my opinion. This particular randomized uh, blinded trial actually proves the point looking at a past ass outcome as opposed to an ACR20 outcome. Not surprisingly, the combo group had more um, nuisance side effects as you would when you add methotrexate to leflunamide, 44% versus 28% nausea, vomiting, GI stuff, and a little bit more in ALTs, but you're gonna monitor for that stuff and you're gonna manage it as you normally would. Um, on another interesting study at um, uh, the psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis patients, and they looked at IL-18 levels in it was 155 adult patients with either PSA or um, ankylosing spondylitis, and they, you know, they were these are people who they're looking actually at cardiovascular risk factors and whatnot, and they found that IL-18 was elevated in those who had peripheral arthritis due to psoriatic arthritis more so than axial PSA or axial SPA or AS patients. That elevations were higher in the PSA patients who also had evidence of ischemic heart disease and uh, elevated triglyceride uh, levels, um, an atherogenic index that was high, suggesting this could be a marker for um, comorbidity in patients with peripheral PSA. We don't usually get IL-18 levels, but I think we're going to be seeing more of that possibility in the future. Corvitas, as you know, is the old Corona registry that's been renamed. Um, and um, they looked at uh, their large cohort, you know, 2,800 patients on a TNF inhibitor and 3,000 patients on a non-TNF biologic and looked at correlations between body weight and response to drugs. They showed that um, severe obesity, the highest levels of obesity, had a significantly lower odds of achieving low disease activity, um, MCID, or a very low CDI. Um, and the reductions were about 10 to 20 percent. So it's not gigantic, but it's a very consistent story. We know the obese patients don't respond well um, to a lot of different drugs. Um, but was also interesting, and I don't know if you heard this before, and I've seen it a few times, that it's the underweight patients, those with a, I think the BMI was under 18.5, um, really had an even worse response to drugs, meaning 50 to 70% lower risks of, lower odds of achieving LDA, uh, MCID, and a low CDI. So what's the deal with low um, underweight, low BMI, underweight RA. And I think that this data, and it's been shown multiple times before, suggests you see a really thin RA patient, a lot of disease activity. I'd worry more about that patient than I would about the 300-pound RA patient. It's just the, the numbers. I mean, low-weight individuals are more likely to die and have cardiovascular events. They have more inflammatory markers. Again, there's something, they tend to be more likely to be smokers um, in some studies. 
But I don't think it's just that. I think that there's a different biology to the underweight, severely underweight, active RA patient. Um, we talked earlier about undifferentiated RA, and there was another interesting report this week about um, undifferentiated arthritis that actually had a large cohort from the Leeds Arthritis Clinic, over 1,100 patients who were followed longitudinally. These patients were autoantibody negative. They had, um, on average, um, a swollen joint count of uh, two, a tender joint count of three. They did not meet criteria. They had low hack scores, but elevated hack scores of 0.6. And, um, and that profile didn't change with time. They looked at them over different time frames, from beginning in 1993 and going all the way up to 2019. And during this period, these undifferentiated arthritis patients were more likely to receive a DMARD, mostly methotrexate, and DMARD use went up from 17% to 52% from 93 to 2019. What do you think was the outcome? Well, it wasn't what you'd expect. I would expect that, you know, they would have done much better and whatnot. It turns out that disability did not change over time, that um, the number that evolved into from UA to RA remain constant over time around 20%, like 14 to 26%, but not changing over time. And the number of patients who had disease-free status 10 years later was about 60% and did not change over time. The point being that not all undifferentiated arthritis is going to progress. Treatment of that may not change the course, that we need to have another way of looking at this cohort and subsetting them and figuring out how to best manage them over time. Um, lastly, anaphrolimab and lupus. You know it was approved. It's it's out there. It's um, uh, it's based on the on you know the very well done studies, the tulip studies, and a phase two trial. Um, and now it's being studied in lupus nephritis. 147 patients um, in a randomized control trial either received IV 300 milligrams of anaphrolimab monthly or an intensified regimen of 900 milligrams monthly times three doses and then 300 versus placebo. They were on their background, DMARDs and steroids in the usual, and the outcomes were at week 52. And you know what? Primary endpoint was not achieved. The primary endpoint of a 24-hour uh, UPCR outcome was about the same between the placebo and the anaphrolimab group. So primary endpoint not achieved, but secondary endpoints were significantly better or numerically better, I should say. And that included what? Um, inactive urinary sediment, 41% versus 13% when you compare the intensive regimen anaphrolimab to placebo. Um, um, actually it's 46 versus 31. Um, let me see. Yeah, it's about that. Sustained glucocorticoid reductions also um, better in the intensive anaphrolimab group. But anaphrolimab, the type 1 interferon inhibitor, did have more um, cases of herpes zoster. So it remains to be seen what we're doing here. You know, I think the bottom line is these are all biopsy proven class 3 and 4 lupus nephritis patients. And Obviously, the usual regimens are not going to work here. You're going to need high-dose regimens. You're going to need different, different ways of delivering drug or maybe combinations of drug. I don't think this is dead yet. I think this merits other study. Um, I think some of the results here are encouraging, but it's unfortunate that 
they did not meet the primary endpoint. And, you know, isn't that the art of doing clinical trials, choosing the right primary endpoint? All right, that's it for this week. You can go to the website, check out these citations and more. Be sure to follow us during the week. We're still doing some QD clinics to support uh, Room Now Live that's happening next week. Thanks.